Welcome to the Buzz, a podcast of the Jazz Journal Association. I'm Michael Ambrosino, writer, researcher, and producer of a variety of jazz programs at 33third.org, including the audio documentary on Pan Latin Jazz, Los Obedados, or The Forgotten Ones. This is the second part of our two-part series, speaking with John Santos and Chris Washburn about how Latin jazz is covered within the traditional mainstream jazz press and whether Latin jazz is actually tokenized within mainstream jazz as well. John Santos is a master multi-percussionist, band leader, composer, arranger, educator, and social activist whose remarkable life and career has just been beautifully captured in the new award-winning video documentary, Santos Skin to Skin. His latest album is Filosofia Carabena, Volume 3, A Puerto Rico del Arma. Chris Washburn is a professor of music and ethnomusicology and chair of the music department at Columbia University. He's led the Seotos Band for several decades now and is author of Latin Jazz, The Other Jazz, a brilliant in-depth accounting of how Latin jazz is perceived within the traditional jazz community. Gentlemen, welcome back to The Buzz. We left off talking about the hidden history of Pan-Latin jazz and the knowledge gap. This knowledge gap is created within mainstream jazz media, the broadcasting industry, and quite frankly, many folks who love and listen to jazz on a regular basis don't also understand the depth of history that's associated with this music. How would you both address this within your careers as musicians, educators, and activists? Well, I think the first thing is, is that that word education is super important, right? The change happens with young people, and it's really important to develop programs that introduce those folks to the importance of this music. And I've dedicated a lot of my energy, and I know John has too, to reaching those folks before they get this, they, these ideas that are uh, proliferate in the press and also in mainstream media. Usually what I try to start with is in order to understand our pop stars today, like how is it possible that Bad Bunny can be number one on the charts and on the Billboard 200 in this day and age and have an all Spanish speaking recording, which is great, but it's not the first time that that's happened, right? And if you don't understand history, you don't understand how this was possible. Or how is it possible that Mark Anthony and J-Lo are big pop stars today or the, the popularity of Ricky Martin? You need to understand the history and the history of this music or to understand why hip-hop emerged the way that it did. You need to understand the important Caribbean contribution to all of that. So as a college professor, I do that in the college level as well. So it's not only on the young people, but on the college level. But then I've dedicated a lot of my academic energies to writing and revisionist history, basically to try to analyze why this has happened and to, to get the names of these really important innovators out there and in the press and documented. So in hopes that slowly this will resonate and people will start to pay attention. And not only that, every time we play and any time a musician plays this music, we have, I think, a moral obligation to talk about its roots. It doesn't have to be like a lecture or anything, but just to make people hip to why this music is important and who these important innovators are. So it's even like the repertoire you choose and who you pay tribute to on your recordings and things like that. It all makes a difference. But of course, it's a very small difference. And we're just I'm just one voice out of many, and I'm shouting against a whole generations and generations of voices that have completely silenced this group of innovators and the reason why the music sounds the way it does. Clearly, what you just described is, is one of the core reasons for writing Latin Jazz, The Other Jazz. I was curious briefly, how was it received in the mainstream jazz press? 
because I know with Los Olvidados that actually promoting the documentary was twice as hard as producing it. It was, the silence was absolutely deafening. Absolutely. It wasn't something that I didn't expect because it's totally writing against the grain. There were certain enlightened folks in the press that reached out immediately and said, thank you for writing this. And then it was just silence every way around. And my Oxford University press submitted it to all of the lists for awards and things. Nothing. And because it's just not what people want to hear. And it, it goes against the grain of something that in the last episode, John was talking about the African-American Museum down in Washington, D.C., not giving any mention of the importance of Afro-Latin culture, Black culture from the Caribbean and from Latin America. And that's because this country is black and white and has been so legally since Plessy versus Ferguson in the late 1800s. And these are court cases that were established in a very racist era that still permeate. And it's only been in recent times where people are starting to realize that actually the racial history of this music in this country is not black and white. It's much more diverse than that. But we're stuck in that. And also, you have to think about kind of the adversity that African-American culture has faced for many, many years. Acknowledging that Afro-Latin contribution can be seen as a threat in some ways of kind of giving away some of the ownership that's vitally important that's really empowered African-American culture. I mean, if we think about it, jazz is probably the greatest gift African-American culture gave to the world. It transformed music everywhere. It Everywhere it went, it touched people and changed the history. But what I want us to think about is what is the definition of African-American culture? Because there is a really strong Afro-Latin and West Indian component to African-American culture at the basic foundations of it. And that's what I'm hoping to broaden some people's perspectives about, that it's not actually denying the importance of African-American culture. It's actually embracing the diversity and the strengths of it because it's really a global phenomenon. John, if you could speak to moving beyond this binary thinking and the remarkable diverse nature of Pan Latin artistry, you know, for example, when I look at your career, you've done just about everything one can imagine in this music. As you've done that, you've harnessed musical traditions from all over the world as a contributor and as a band leader. If I use you as an example, or someone like Omar Sosa, who's had a similar career, but in a much different way, does your work somehow pose a problem for critics and programmers and festival directors and record labels within the mainstream jazz community? Yeah, it does. You know, Chris just alluded to it too, right at the end there, what he was just saying, how the older generations in particular, a lot of, a lot of great blues and jazz players grew up with no, with zero knowledge of the Latino element. And that's changing, you know, nowadays there's a lot more people that are hip to it. But even in, in my generation, the elders who were, who I was learning from and hearing and seeing, a lot of them had, had really zero experience. Yet they were great musicians. They were great uh, influences. But you need to have, the history needs to be corrected, as Chris was saying. So I think when we look at how we get caught up in trends, like in the case of, we're talking about Puerto Rico, we're talking about Cuba as being major influencers in jazz, people get caught up. Every day I, I, I you know, see it, how, how we are stuck on the, the whole Cuban 
political situation, the embargo, and people kind of get stuck and don't want to get beyond that and see how the music is so inclusive to, to who we are, to our colonial, our American history. And the case of Puerto Rico, you know, I mentioned to people in Puerto Rico, and I, I can't tell you how many times Americans, especially people who older in particular, a little bit older, but they'll say, oh man, Puerto Rico is beautiful. I was just there. It's incredible. The people are so nice with a total unawareness of the dire colonial situation that Puerto Rico is in right now. And so uh, there, there's a lot that's just, people don't want to deal with it. And the, 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 to be able to say to older musicians that, well, you know, the Cuban and the Puerto Rican, the Caribbean element is really a major part of jazz. When they didn't grow up with it, they weren't exposed to it. A lot of them don't want to give that up. They get defeated about it. I've, I've seen that a few times where people are like, well, no, it's not a Latino thing. This is a, a black thing, as if the Latino thing can't be black. So there's a lot of confusion that's been part and parcel of growing up with a divide and conquer mentality that we deal with, where we've been divided up and well, even among ourselves. It's not like all the black and Latino musicians are united in this. A lot of the black musicians also, black American musicians, are not hip to it and, 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 and are defensive about their thing. And as Chris put it very well, we're not trying to take anything away. We're adding and trying to celebrate the diversity that folks were not exposed to. I think about in broadcasting, I remember once as a programmer, I played too much Latin music within a set and the program director said, hey, you're making this sound like a Latin jazz show, which makes me think of Arturo Farrell, who we've mentioned a couple of times in his lovely phrase, the connective tissue between genres that connects everything that came from the immensely powerful African musical traditions that have influenced everything we do here in the U.S., and it makes me wonder if part of the reason that jazz journalism struggles to embrace the Pan-Latin experience in music is because of its relationship to in-depth storytelling that often involves cultural, political storytelling about struggle. Does that resonate with you both? If it's honest, it's going to go there for sure. Absolutely. And also you have to think about the history of jazz journalism in this country. It was really founded at a time in the 40s and 50s when it starts to emerge in the 60s, along with the civil rights movement. And many of the earliest writers, almost all of them were white men who were really trying to raise jazz up to be accepted as a high art form, right? And Gunther Schuller being a great example of that, who did wonders for getting jazz recognized in a variety of different places of higher education and getting programs established, but also just opportunities. Those roots are really important, but society has really moved on from that moment and it's time to diversify. But I find that some of the publications are still rooted back then. Some of the programming is still rooted in what happened to you, Michael. And also, I remember interviewing a critic who go unnamed, a very prolific writer who used to write for Downbeat. And he was also a big fan of Latin music. Every time he would submit a review with five stars and it was a Latin jazz group or a Latin group, it would be published with four stars. And he kept asking, he says, that's not what I put in that. You know, this is a great record. This should, it's going to win a Grammy. It's going to be important and historically important. And that just was a policy that was never explained to him. And there's these little types of things that are left over. Like, in other words, we're going to elevate, but we're going to elevate a certain type of jazz that fits into the narrative that the early founding fathers of, of jazz criticism launched. And it really takes 
a lot of effort to work against the grain. And Michael, you're a prime example of that. Someone who's really trying to broaden the perspective. There's a lot of other very enlightened young writers that do the same. And I think we're moving in the right direction, but we have a really long way to go. And you can just even see like in the Jazz Journalist Association Awards, who gets those awards, who gets recognized. If we just step back and analyze over the course of the years, who got recognized, who wins those awards, even in the polls, the journalist polls and things like that, the critics polls, you'll see that it's really slanted in a, in a way that does not embrace many folks that are associated with music that could be labeled Pan Latin jazz. It, it's funny you, you mentioned that because just out of curiosity, I took the jazz critics poll that Downbeat came up with last year and I made it into a spreadsheet. I literally looked at every candidate who was nominated, everyone who was awarded, and less than 5% of all people considered for that poll were either of Pan-Latin descent or were honoring the Pan-Latin musical traditions as they're incorporated into jazz. And clearly, if you look at the pantheon of music that's out there, or if you look at what's actually recorded, there is much more than 5%. I'm not saying that there's inherent bias. I think this goes back to the indifference that's both voluntary and involuntary, but it clearly notates a problem because we would agree that the percentage of music that is some of the most innovative, remarkably well-grounded, spiritually focused, and powerful music is coming out of the Pan-Latin community within jazz. John, one of the things I'm fascinated about when it comes to jazz journalism is how we center around a performative nature we celebrate culture, but we have a hard time with in-depth storytelling. Uh, investigative reporting in jazz is almost non-existent. And I think of Black History Month and that it's critical and important, but a lot of Black and African-American scholars would say every month is Black History Month. So I was curious, what's your impression of the role that Hispanic Heritage Month plays in celebrating Pan-Latin music? And where is it helpful and where does it hurt? I have mixed feelings about it. My knee-jerk reaction is that it's not cool that it, that to say this is the Hispanic Heritage Month. I mean, even using that term, you know, there's, there's so much packed into it, and then it's forgotten about for the for the rest of the eleven months. And then what does get recognized in that little one month? What you do see in that month also is not necessarily representative of what's going on. It doesn't tell the truth in a way. What's being put out there is the revisionist history, because what actually happened is different. And we're trying to tell the truth about what went down. So I, I see that as problematic. And it, it kind of ties into another problem for me, which is that one of the things I always appreciated coming up as a musician is liner notes. And looking on those records, on the vinyl records, and the liner notes are just so fascinating. It's such a beautiful puzzle to help you put together timelines and dates and make connections. And such an important part of jazz appreciation and jazz education, just crucial. I've embraced that, and, I, and I've kind of taken that idea myself and put it on steroids because any project that I've ever produced has had extensive liner notes. I'll go the extra mile and come out of pocket to pay more to get a CD done that has a booklet that has liner notes. And I think it's really crucial. It's important. And that's a dilemma that's related here because now 
with this whole digital thing, the liner notes are almost a, a dinosaur too, a thing of the past. It's really hard to find the information that, that's necessary to put things in context. I see that all of that is intertwined and I don't mean to jump around too much, but I, I see all these things as dovetailing what happened to us in, in 2011, 2012, when, when Neris eliminated Latin jazz and 31 other quote unquote ethnic categories from Grammy consideration. And that whole dilemma, that whole embarrassing tragedy that went down at that time was really horrible. And again, emblematic of the general attitude of society, not only in jazz, not only among journalists, but just in general, trying to really marginalize as best, as most effectively as, as they can, marginalize the music and not accept the fact that the music's related, the music, it has to be inclusive. Chris, one of the things that we talked about in Los Olvidados, and I, I actually spoke about this, was that Pan-Latin artists are multilingual. They speak several languages, but they also speak several musical languages. So they do something effectively throughout their careers that I call musical code switching, which is often I got to play in a big band. I got to do folkloric music. Maybe I'm doing funk. Now, I know a lot of jazz musicians do that. But what I was impressed about when I interviewed people for the documentary was the breadth of that code switching it was amazing. That also falls into the hybridization of musical genres that then are the product of the music they create. It's by nature so diverse, so experimental. It's always teasing things apart. Do you feel like this innate flexibility that a lot of Pan-Latin artists have matured throughout their careers and their lives frustrates mainstream jazz because they don't quite understand it and they have a hard time supporting it? What I would I would say is that it's the Pan Latin jazz artists that actually really embrace the true essence of jazz. When you speak to early jazz innovators, even even more recent jazz innovators, and you ask them the definition of jazz or what jazz means, like if you go to Sidney Bechet, he said it's the sound of freedom. If you go to Bill Easley, he said it's a beautiful response to adversity. If you go to Wayne Shorty, he says, it simply means I dare you. And when Wayne was pushed further on that, he said, like, what do you mean? That What's the dare? And he says, well, the dare is to imagine what the world should be and just make it so. What's interesting about all of these folks is the jazz is being defined as a verb, as an action. It's not a noun. It's not a genre label. It's actually a philosophy of life. And that's what's so unique about jazz and why it was so popular early on and has such global appeal is that it was about virtuosic adaptability and improvisation. And that as long as improvisation stayed at the center and the core of the music, any kind of influence could be brought in. And it was. And the early foundations of jazz are really diverse. As a matter of fact, in 1917, I found an ad that Evan Christopher, the clarinetist, hit me to from the New York Times for a concert hall that actually sat in the same place that Jazz at Lincoln Center sits now at Columbus Circle. And they were advertising a Sunday afternoon of Exotica, teaching the newest dance. So that neighborhood at that time would have been mainly a white audience. The newest dance was called the Danson. So the Cuban dance on and the musical artists that were playing that day were the original Dixieland jazz band, the first jazz band from New Orleans, five white guys that were recorded, the first jazz recording ever made. They were in New York City playing dance on. Now, they never recorded dance on at the time. But the fact of the matter is they were 
whatever you want to call that, you, that code switching, I like to call it polymusical or, you know, it comes out of bimusicality, polymusicality, where that was the nature of early jazz. They needed to be able to play dance songs. They needed to be able to play the Charleston and all sorts of different types of dances for the dancers at that time. It was a wide range of styles. And what has happened pretty much for a lot of jazz history as we moved into the more of the 50s and the 60s is that diversity is limited in some ways. And it was easy for jazz musicians in that time or easier to make a living playing one style. But coming into the 1980s and 1990s, it's not easy for any musician anywhere to be playing music only in one style and making a living with it. There's very few that can actually do that. And so in some ways, that polymusicality or that code switching is definitely essential. And yes, by necessity, musicians coming from the Caribbean or Latin America were forced to do that because they would play their own styles of music. If they came to New York, then they would have to be playing other types of Latin music that may not be popular in their own places of origin or their own heritage. So they're code switching there. And to work, they learned oftentimes many of them were aspiring jazz musicians. So absolutely, there's a diversity there that is lost in many of the jazz programs of today and the early jazz musicians and what they do. I, I wanted to mention two things. One is in the first decade of the 1900s, the first quote unquote black music that got disseminated through recordings was the Danzong, was a Cuban Danzong. And so it's funny how, not funny, but it's ironic how racism works, that, that the American companies didn't want to record black American musicians because of racism, but they went ahead and recorded music from Cuba or from Argentina because, you know, it was exotic. They use that word exotic. And so that is part of the history of jazz. So before there were American uh, from the United States jazz groups being recorded. These Cuban groups were part of the, the record and people were listening to that. The musicians were definitely traveling in that circuit of the ports in the Caribbean between New Orleans, Havana, San Juan, Veracruz, etc. And then the, the Banda Municipal tradition in Puerto Rico, for example, where all the little towns had had bands and people could come and learn how to read and learn Susan marches, but also learn typical music. That's the reason why a group like James Reese Europe's orchestra during World War One had a clarinet section among the 20 something musicians who are mostly Puerto Ricans has to do with their ability to read and to play different types of music where a lot of the black American musicians up to that time were not given that opportunity to learn how to read music. So that's all part of jazz history that also has been overlooked. Thank you. That, that's a, a brilliant book into what Chris said. And again, when I search through books that would describe this, they simply still don't exist. So as someone who's been in the tech sector, as long as I've been a jazz journalist and broadcaster, I constantly think about how technology aids and abets cultural disruption we're both living in a time where there's such a systemic nature of rapid adoption of new norms. Is the new generation, and, and I say this because you both teach and you both lead bands that often incorporate musicians that are much younger, they're coming up, they're cutting their teeth, they're learning what a career can be in a 21st century. Is the new generation of Pan-Latin jazz musicians moving away from mainstream platforms? And when I mean platforms, I mean broadcasting, print, the whole shebang, because they don't feel they work for the kind of music they wish to explore? 
That's been part of the issue for me from the beginning. If they're not writing about me, I was always feeling like I'm not going to sit here and jump up and down. I'm going to keep doing what I do. And the musicians, of course, I think are, are looking at it that way. They they understand, I believe, at least the students that, that we deal with understand that you have to be versatile. You have to you have to know the history of the music and move forward with an ability to to read, to compose, to play different styles and what have you. The young musicians, I think, have to keep that in mind. And then dealing with technology, that's another thing. Like I'm a dinosaur with that stuff. I, I don't know anything about that, but they're moving into all those directions. But I don't know that it's necessarily the best thing. They're doing what, what feels natural to them to do, but they're dealing with platforms, for example, that that, that don't pay, where they can get a lot of airplay, so to speak, or, or just visibility being on these playlists, but then making no money at it. And also they've taken away from us, the industry has taken away the ability to sell merchandise, to sell CDs, to sell vinyl, in this style at least. They say vinyl's coming back, but for our style of music, you know, there's, there's still, there's no real viable market to sell any, any type of a product that has our music. So it's all been kind of taken away. And I think the kids are trying their best to navigate that, but they're just trying to learn how to play and play as much as they can. That is part of the dilemma. Like they'll play for free, for example. They'll go out and and do whatever they can to play as much as possible. They need that experience. But going out and playing for free in this environment also doesn't help the overall respect for the form that we're trying to foster. Yeah, I think that one of the advantages that the young musicians have is they have access. They have access to so many recordings and so much material. Like for us to be able to learn a John Coltrane solo, you would have to go out and buy a Coltrane record or get on a cassette tape and you'd have to transcribe it. And there was now you can just see the transcription right on a YouTube video, right? If someone's already done that work for you which is a problem in terms of their own development, in terms of what they can hear and their musicality, but they have access. So what we're getting is that at least by the time they get to college, the level of musicianship is higher than it's ever been before for young people, but they have these really strange holes in their knowledge. And so as an educator on a college level, you have to identify where those holes are and kind of start to send them back and fill that that material in, but you can, you'll get young musicians who have just completely digested Coltrane. And that would be oftentimes somebody that would take, you know, happen in their twenties or thirties or forties from our generation. So that's remarkable. And they have also access to so many styles from around the world and access on educational videos on how to play them. And I knew I was just doing an arrangement and I wanted to try to figure out some alternatives of cumbia rhythms and drum rhythms that I could put into it. And within 10 minutes of a search, I could find 50 different versions of different things that I could use. Those raw materials, it's just a, such a gift. And I don't know if they realize what a gift that is. So it'll definitely transform their musical sensibilities because it's a huge global reach that they have access to. Whether they choose to use it or not, that's to be determined. But now as we reach the elder stage of our careers, it's really important for us to mentor and to guide them in a variety of different ways to check out these different things and then what to listen for. Because I find that even though they've listened to it, maybe they're not really hearing what they're supposed to be hearing. Like on a simple level, these musicians in their early career, jazz musicians, they just really haven't figured out how to hear clave or how all of the rhythmic components fit together yet. And so teach them how to, to listen for that. I think the future is bright because of this, but it's going to be extremely difficult for them to figure out how to make a living with it. These new models that the industry has put forth. 
we have the classic dilemma contemporary of accumulating tons of information and then mistaking that for knowledge. The young kids in particular have to deal with sorting that out. And it's typical of this phone generation of just anything that they want to know is at their fingertips, but that's different than knowledge. Brilliant, John. And also we think of the ecology of jazz, that basically the concentric circles that are supporting this art form. And I think of bookstores, clubs, print journalism, even those people who are on the web, festivals, they're all under attack in our new digital economy. It's harder forever for all of those to fill the gaps of knowledge that you're talking about, John, which is part of the oral tradition. It's part of learning by doing, not necessarily by reciting what's been done. Unfortunately, that's it. We could go on for an, another two or three series, I'm sure. But John Santos and Chris Washburn, I cannot thank you enough for taking part of this critical conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. It was wonderful. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, we're just getting warmed up over here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Susan Brink for the Jazz Journalists Association. Thank you for listening to The Buzz, a podcast produced by the JJA. We release new episodes regularly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic is our theme music. Toodaloo! Thank you.